the evidence of your spiritual death is the way that you're walking, is the pursuits that you're pursuing, is the desires that you're chasing. This is why Paul is zeroing in on spiritual death, because this is the description of us apart from Christ that will shine maximum glory upon Jesus. And that's been Paul's intention from chapter one, verse three, to shine maximum glory upon Jesus. And he can show maximum glory upon Jesus by, first of all, describing the realities of what God has done for us. And then setting that in opposition to what we were before. It's almost like if I were to say, you know, such and such a person is just really deserving of respect. He he has worked and he has amassed a fortune of $50 million. Well, that would mean two totally different things if I were to then say, and he started out with a fortune of $48 million. That would mean something very much different than if I said, and he started from nothing. He was born in a house with a dirt floor and he, had, he grew up with nothing and poverty and yet he has amassed $50 million. You would then have a different perception altogether of what the person had accomplished. And this is Paul's intention. You cannot grasp the glory of what God has given you in Christ without grasping what God in essence, started with, or to put it another way, where he began, where your your road of discipleship began. In order to understand to the fullest degree our blessings and privileges in Christ, it is necessary to also understand where God begins to impress upon us this richness of God's grace. He must begin from there. So he begins with this, this description of us apart from Christ as dead. And we describe this as a spiritual death, a spiritual deadness. So Paul here is at pains to call to have this reality of spiritual death land upon our consciousness with great force. And here's how we see this. In our English translations, I know I'm reading from the ESV here, the, the verb here comes really the second word, you were. Right. In the original, the subject of the sentence doesn't come until verse four. And the verb of the sentence doesn't come until verse five. The subject of the sentence is not you. The subject of the sentence is God. The verb of the sentence is made alive. That's the verb, the subject and the verb. God made alive. But look at what Paul says before he ever gets there. Look at how much he says before he ever even gets to the subject. Again, our English translations are trying to smooth this over for us by giving us a subject and a verb so that we don't have to, in our minds, have this long sentence that's seven verses long. But in reality, reality, what Paul wrote is three verses of Scripture before he ever got to the subject of God. Here's what he's saying. He wants this reality of your spiritual deadness to land so hard upon your thoughts and upon your consciousness and for it to just sit there in great discomfort 
while you wait for and God made alive. You see what he's doing there? He just wants this to be like a weight of bricks that comes down upon us. He's told us about the glory of, of who we are in Christ. He's prayed that the Spirit would help us to see this and understand this to greater levels. And then he hits us with, with this before picture and he puts the before picture out there and he repeats it several times and he leaves it there for you to wrestle with before he says, and God made alive. Now the King James here distorts it the most of all. The King James does the worst job of anybody. I'm sure there's some King Jameses here. And look at what the King James does. The King James takes that subject and verb and moves it all the way up to verse one. You see that? And the only reason for that is to to do directly what Paul was not wanting to do. Paul was wanting that reality to hit you and stay there, dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the prince of the power of the air, following the ruler of this world, pursuing your passions, pursuing your worldly pleasures. That's what you were. And God made alive together with Christ. You see how that just counteracts what Paul's doing to say, and you were dead, but God made you alive. Paul wants that to rest on your thoughts. So death is a separation of the soul. That's what death is, is soul separation. And it's healthy and it's helpful for us as believers to know how to think well and think rightly about death. So believers, we should think about death as soul separation. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. Two things that God never intended to be separated. God made you and he made me as a soul and a body as one. Something that was never intended to be broken apart. So do not fall into the trap today that is so prevalent. The, the way of thinking that I hear Christians talk in this way of thinking in, in which this body, this old body, I just can't wait to put it aside. I'll be done with this body and I'll be free to go and be with Jesus. Don't think that way. Your body is just as much you as your soul. God did not make any more, either one of those things more you than the other. And so he created you and he created me as this body soul. And when physical death separates the soul from the body, that's the most unnatural thing we'll ever experience in this life. We were never meant to experience. This is why physical death is so traumatic for us to think of the physical death of loved ones or for us to think of our own physical death. That's why it's so unsettling because it's something that God never intended to be the natural process of life for us. So this physical death, this separation of the soul from the body, of course, is not what Paul's speaking of here. He's speaking of spiritual death. Spiritual death is not the separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God. And so this is what, what Adam experienced on that day that he took of the fruit. His soul was separated from God and he experienced at that moment spiritual death and that spiritual death began a process of natural death for him or physical death. Now, throughout the history of humanity, there, there's been basically three ways that people who are theistic people, that means just people that believe there is a, a God, there's been really three ways that people who are theists think about our condition apart from God. One of the ways that, that 
people have tended to think of our condition apart from God is, we could describe it with the word healthy. People believe, there are many people believe that apart from God, we are healthy. We're just fine. We don't, we don't need a God. If there is a God, we don't need him. We're just fine. We're healthy without him. Nobody in any corner of the Christian umbrella believes that. That's a pagan belief. That's a false religion belief. Nobody who would claim the, the, the faith of Christianity believes that apart from God, we're healthy. But among those who would call themselves Christians, there, there's two other ways of thinking of our condition apart from God. And we could describe that, those with the two words of one would be sick. So many who would claim faith in God believe that apart from God, we're sick. And within that family of people that believe in, in that manner of belief, there's varying degrees of sickness that you would sort of fall into. Like maybe we're deathly sick. We're on our deathbed sick, or maybe we're just somewhat sick and we'd need some help from God. So there, it's a sliding scale sort of thing. But many who would claim faith in Christ would, would believe that apart from God, we're sick. Others would hold to the belief that apart from God, we're not sick, but we're dead. And there's a great difference between dead and sick. We, of course, believe that apart from God, we are dead. And the reason we believe that is because the scriptures plainly say it. So we believe that apart from God, there is only death. There's only spiritual death. There's not spiritual sickness. There's not a spiritual ailment. There is nothing but deadness. So let's spend a little bit of time to really understand what deadness is, what spiritual deadness is, what it looks like, and what it doesn't look like. Because I, I find that consistently spiritual deadness is not something that is widely understood, perhaps, thought of very much. And as a result, I think there's some misperceptions about what spiritual death is and what spiritual deadness is. So let's first of all talk about what spiritual deadness is not. Spiritual deadness is not worthlessness. The spiritually dead are not worthless. The scriptures never teach us of a worthlessness in humanity. Whether we are united to God or separated from God, we are made in God's image and God's image is infinitely valuable, though tainted, though stained, though corrupted, though fallen. It is still valuable. So spiritual deadness does not mean spiritual worthlessness. Neither does spiritual deadness mean inactivity. And I think here's where I think a lot of misunderstanding comes from. Spiritual deadness does not mean spiritual inactivity, or it doesn't mean inactivity in any way. I think that we can think that because... Clearly, the metaphor of dead means inactive, right? Have you ever known an active dead person, right? The death means inactivity. It means the stopping of activity. And so we can kind of take that idea and bring it into the spiritual realm in a way that causes us to misunderstand what spiritual deadness is. Spiritual deadness is not, most definitely not, inactivity, even spiritual inactivity. Just look at the passage. Look at what the passage will say to us about the condition of being apart from Christ. You were dead in, your in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I mean, walking is an activity, right? Following the prince of the power. So there's a, there's a walking, there's following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That's actually the same word there. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So we're carrying out desires, we're living, we're walking, 
We're pursuing passions. We're pursuing desires. That's a very active description of spiritually dead people. So spiritually dead people are not people that are physically inactive. We would know that. That's kind of common sense. But spiritually dead people are not people that would be emotionally inactive. Spiritually dead people don't have a problem loving other people or having emotional engagements with other people or caring for other people. Spiritually dead people don't have lives that are necessarily empty of joy and happiness. Spiritually dead people can have lives that are happy and joyful. So spiritually dead people are not inactive emotionally, neither are they inactive intellectually or cognitively. Spiritually dead people can be some of the most perceptive people on the planet. They can be some of the cleverest people. They can figure out some of the most confounding mysteries and achieve some of the highest levels of learning that humanity has seen. Spiritual deadness has nothing to do with intellectual ability or intellectual desire or drive. Neither does spiritual deadness mean that there is no spiritual activity. Spiritually dead people can be very, and I'll use the quotes here, spiritual. They can be very interested in spiritual things. They can even have spiritual pursuits in their life that are livelier than your spiritual pursuits. And that can be a common sort of thing. So when we think of spiritual deadness, we shouldn't think of the guy that went to prison for beating his wife and beating his kids and was no count, no good, never did anything good, nobody ever. We should think of all humanity. Because this is a description of people that have active, lively, oftentimes successful, oftentimes very spiritually astute in worldly ways, lives. I once listened to a lecture from Dr. D.A. Carson. Some of you may know that name, D.A. Carson. He's wrote a lot. I once listened to a lecture in which he lectured on this passage. And in lecturing in this passage, he, he illustrated spiritual deadness by referring to a professor, a co-professor of his when he was at Trinity Divinity. He's not there anymore, but when he was at Trinity Divinity, he had a co-professor there that was a professor of homiletics or, or preaching. And he, as an illustration, he would say that this particular professor, each semester would take his homiletics class down to the cemetery and have them preach to the gravestones once during the semester. And he would do it so that they would know what it's like to preach to dead people. And nothing could be more untrue. Preaching to dead people is not preaching to tombstones. Preaching to dead people, and I've done it for 15 years, sometimes is preaching to the most active people in the church. Sometimes it's preaching to the one who has the best singing voice in the church. Sometimes it's preaching to the Sunday school teachers. And sometimes it's preaching to the deacons, not present ones, but in past times. Preaching to the spiritually dead is not like preaching to a cemetery because the spiritually dead aren't those who are devoid of emotion or intellect or even spiritual interests. Spiritual deadness is another thing altogether. So Scripture affirms for us 
Of course, the worth of the spiritually dead. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 tells us that all people have inherent dignity because all are created in the image of God. But the scriptures also tell us that the spiritually dead are capable of good works. Now, by good works, I don't mean good in the sense that acceptable and pleasing to God. I mean good in the sense of having moral value, of having positive moral value. The scriptures tell us that spiritually dead people do good works, works that have positive moral value. Jesus himself says, you yourselves being evil, yet you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more does the Holy Spirit know how to give the soul, or how much more does the Father know to give the Holy Spirit to you? So Jesus affirms there that those who are evil, even they know how to do good things. So the scriptures affirm to us that those who are spiritually dead can can do things, do works that have moral value or a positive moral impact. So that's not spiritual deadness. Another thing that comes with spiritual deadness that I think we sometimes need to struggle through is, and this is something that's prevalent in the body of Christ, particular the body of Christ, if you have grown up in a church context and like myself came to a knowledge of Jesus at a fairly young age, and find yourself having difficulty remembering what it was like to be spiritually dead. Anybody else have trouble remembering what it was like to be spiritually dead? I mean, when I was spiritually dead, I was seven. And I don't think I murdered anybody. I don't think I raped anybody. I don't think I did any drugs or any prison time or any of those things when I was seven. So for me, thinking about spiritual deadness, I need to be careful not to associate it with memories of past sins that don't exist because that's not what the scriptures teach us. Spiritual deadness is not based on how we feel about ourselves. Sometimes we don't, well, I don't feel spiritually dead. I mean, who does feel spiritually dead? So spiritual deadness is not based on emotions. It's not based on how I feel about myself. It's not based on memories. It's not based on having committed certain peculiar sins. Like those who maybe would come to faith in Christ in their 20s and have an experience of extreme depravity to recount that and say, that's what spiritual deadness looked like. I'm glad I'm not there anymore, right? Not all of us have that. So it's important for us to understand that we have the Bible to teach us what we are apart from Christ. What we are apart from Christ isn't what we remember ourselves to be. It isn't based on some particular sin that we might have committed. It isn't based on some sort of emotion. It isn't based on feeling like I used to be spiritually dead, but now I'm spiritually alive. Spiritual deadness is what the scriptures teach us we are apart from our feelings, our memories, or our experiences. Spiritual deadness is a reality that the scriptures teach us we are born with because we inherited from our father, our first, our father, the first Adam. So these are some things that help us to think about what spiritual deadness is not. But let's quickly move on to what spiritual deadness is. So spiritual deadness, the scriptures say to us here in verse one, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. So the spiritual deadness, let's sort of dig into what spiritual deadness is. We talked a moment ago about what it is not. What is spiritual deadness? Well, we see here from the passage that Paul connects it to trespasses and sins. You were once dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So this, these two words, trespasses and sins, we could dig into these two words. I'm sure you are familiar with the two words. One, the trespasses means just a, a going aside, a misstep. Sins is the, is the more common word, hermartia. That just means missing the mark, right? So we could look at the nuances of both of those words. But really, I think Paul just puts those words together in a way to say the totality, the totality of your sinfulness apart from Christ. Those sins that you, that you committed without necessarily intending to sin against God, as well as those sins that you committed knowing that you were sinning against the living God. The willful sins, the sins of the high hand, as the Old Testament calls it. Both of those together, Paul just lumps them together. He uses these two phrases to say the totality of all of that sinfulness apart from Christ, that's the deadness in Christ, or that's the deadness, the sinful deadness, okay? So this trespasses and the sins that lead to this way of walking, this way of living, we might want to say, well, I'm not spiritually dead because I'm active. I'm spiritually active in this way, or I'm spiritually active in that way. And Paul's argument here is directly counter to that. Instead of all this activity as being a reason to say, well, no, I have spiritual life. Paul says, no, that's evidence that you have spiritual death. The evidence of your spiritual death is the way that you're walking, is the pursuits that you're pursuing, is the desires that you're chasing. That's the evidence of the spiritual death. So these this sinfulness, these trespasses, it's both the cause of the spiritual death and the evidence of the spiritual death. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.